The We're LCC podcast is a monthly show that comes out on the 9th of every month. But if you hit the subscribe or follow button on your podcast app, you'll never need to remember that because the show will automatically be there. So go ahead and hit the subscribe or follow button on your podcast app now. We are LCC, a podcast emanating from the halls of Lower Canada College on Royal Avenue in Montreal. Here's alumni officer Christine Jones. Today, trained epidemiologist, professor of biomedical informatics at Harvard Medical School, and the chief innovation officer at Boston Children's Hospital, Dr. John Brownstein, joins us for an in-depth look at the ongoing pandemic. Stay tuned for a fascinating conversation about COVID-19 and dealing with infectious diseases efficiently and effectively. Thank you so much for being here with us today. I'd like to just start by asking you to tell us a little bit about your background and journey from the time you left LCC. Yeah, I really appreciate being here. So I always had an interest in science and biology and medicine. And, you know, being at LCC, there was so much opportunity to go deep in those fields. Always had a trajectory around medical school, but in the course of going to Marianopolis and then McGill, recognized that there was lots of opportunity to contribute to medical sciences without directly becoming an MD and had very specific interests in geography, environmental science, statistics, and new technologies that would allow us to understand the health of populations at large scales that could have impact, not at the individual level, but at the population level. And it was actually through work that I did as part of a program in Kenya and McGill where I started to recognize the significant impact of infectious diseases as part of daily life, which is not necessarily what we experience here, although now we do understand the impact of an infectious disease on, on how that can upend your life. But at the time, you know, that wasn't really a thing other than, you know, your usual flu seasons or, or Lyme disease outbreaks or maybe things like West Nile. So I got interested in this idea of how you bring all these different fields together and come up with a way to predict where diseases will spread, what drives them to spread, like, for instance, changing landscapes or, or climate, mass migrations, conflicts, and found this field of epidemiology, which was really the study of sort of the health of populations and recognize that if you could find really important insights at large scales, you could sort of affect the trajectory, not of the health of an individual, but of the health of a population. And that was really exciting because then I could apply all these fields, computer science and, and, and statistics into actually having real sort of large scale impact. And that's what I went to do my PhD in, in epidemiology at Yale and found this sort of really niche area of using, combining science and technology and medicine. And that's what led me to, to being at Harvard and Boston Children's Hospital and running a lab that's really focused on building technologies that allow us to understand where diseases are emerging and how they're spreading around the globe. You study and work your entire life, basically, to deal with the situation that we are currently in. And now that we're in the thick of it, can you speak to what that actual reality is like versus being in a classroom and learning about it? Yeah, I mean, it's quite funny because, you know, you sort of devote your career to something that may never really happen. So it's a, it's a wild phenomenon when it does. Now, we've had practice because I've been working on other emerging infectious disease for, for many years, whether that's 
West Nile or Ebola or Zika. And we've had sort of practice runs at sort of major epidemics and pandemics, but nothing, of course, of this magnitude. And it's both obviously draining and tiring to spend two years focused on one thing where not only in your professional life, you're focused on COVID, but your friends and family. I mean, that's all really talk about all day, every day for now two years. But it's also, it's sort of an honor to be sort of in a position where you can contribute some of your work towards something that is sort of top of mind for everyone. And, you know, where so many people are in very challenging positions because of the economic downturn, dealing with challenges of a family that's sick or has died. And, and of course, challenges of kids being home from school and, and just all the, the sort of repercussions of this pandemic to be in a position where you're actually sort of contributing is very lucky. So I definitely feel fortunate that I can be in this position. So at the start of everything, let's say back in the fall of 2019, can you tell us a little bit about what was happening? I know you had healthmap.org and maybe you could speak to what was going on in the very beginning of this situation. Well, we developed technology that supports the WHO and CDC around tracking infectious diseases. We use tools in sort of artificial intelligence to, to scrape information on the web, whether that's news or social media, to find clues about disease outbreaks in populations. And at the end of 2019, our system picked up an unusual report of a pneumonia that was impacting a cluster of people in Wuhan. They're all connected to a seafood market. And that was on December 30th of 2019. We submitted that report to WHO. And that really was the first report outside of China of something taking place. And, you know, we sounded the alert and, and really pushed the conversation around focusing on this unusual mysterious illness that, of course, became COVID-19. Beyond that, our team spent a lot of time looking at clues to understand what was taking place in the fall of 2019. And we used a wide range of data sources from looking at search patterns in the search engine Baidu to looking at satellite images of hospitals in Wuhan to understand sort of what social disruption was taking place in the fall and actually found some signals in the later part of the summer, early fall, that things were starting to take place. Now, we weren't condemning China for not having provided information. You know, like any emerging infectious disease, it takes time before people know what it is. And clearly, you could have assumed it was flu or some respiratory pathogen. And what we found was that there were some early signals. Now, that turned into a whole mess because at the time, it was not necessarily super popular to look, think about the origins of COVID. And anytime someone looked into this, it was sort of met with sort of a, a political undertone. And uh, we published some of this. And unfortunately, what ultimately happened was this took on a life of itself because essentially the Trump administration, specifically Donald Trump, tweeted about our work, used it as a tool to say that China was hiding information. And, um, you know, regardless of your political affiliations, Trump tweeting about your work creates a firestorm and unleash bots and really highlighted the fact that science became so political over the course of this pandemic. It was really eye-opening because, you know, we're scientists usually in our box publishing about things and definitely most people don't even know what we do. All of a sudden it becomes front and center and you have the Chinese government condemning you and those kind of things. So really a wild time in uh, the summer of 2020. Right. I can imagine it was a little bit of a snowball effect. So 
Then when things sort of settled, what would you say would be the role of public health and going back to the policies the government sets out for people and how they can impact millions of lives? Yeah, I mean, it's been really challenging. I think that this pandemic has really unearthed some of the real challenges of public health. First of all, public health is deeply underfunded and is definitely not funded for pandemic level resource needs. It also highlighted the challenges of communication and public engagement and understanding, you know, why you have to, for instance, wear a mask or social distance. And and because of the lack of clarity, and I, I think this is especially in the US, probably less so in Canada, you know, everything has been met with real resistance. You know, I have never seen so much pushback on mask wearing as almost anything I've done throughout the pandemic. We published a paper showing that masks can help reduce transmission in the community. That was met with incredible amounts of rage. I mean, of course, now with vaccines, and there's huge amounts of divide, obviously in Canada, less division on some of these topics. But so on one hand, public health plays such an important role and can help alter the course of, you know, an infectious disease. And we've seen this time and time again with good policy, but with policy that is not always clear or when guidance is not always understood or with mixed messages or different incentives, it can really be incredibly challenging. I think that public health generally speaking, you know, has a, a, has an image problem a little bit right now. On one hand, so much of these people that have either on the, on the government front or the academic front have sort of been much more visible. There's been a huge amount of sort of lack of faith in sort of public health and the ability to really communicate good science and how that good science translates to policy. There's a lot of work to be done, especially as we think about future pandemics. Actually, that was going to be moving on to my next question. I was going to ask you, and you just spoke to it a bit. What we've learned over the past two years and, and what we could do moving forward so we can emerge from this pandemic and potentially prevent future ones, if that's even a possibility. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's there's so many learnings. My worry a little bit is that there's so much fatigue that that we've learned a lot, but then, you know, people are going to move on. And because of that, you know, we're not going to necessarily grow from where we've started. There is a huge amount of resource going into the wide range of ways to combat future pandemics, whether that is better surveillance systems, better genomics. Clearly, you know, the identification of Omicron and the quick characterization of what was happening, that was because of major investments in genomic surveillance and academic collaborations that did not exist before the pandemic. So we're in a much better space now to identify emerging infectious diseases, share information, you know, do the experiments to understand transmissibility and severity. Those kinds of things are happening at a pace that never seen before. And I hope that we now have a sort of a different sort of way of doing things going forward. I think we've clearly learned a lot about how to control infection, whether that's unfortunately through masking, which now has been normalized or staying home when you're sick, new diagnostic tools, testing, that's become more commonplace. There's just generally speaking, more of an understanding of hygiene that I think will at least last for some number of years. So I think we're going to be on alert or, or nervous about whatever that next thing is, at least for several years. I don't know what happens in five to 10 years. Do we revert back? I think at some level, we never fully go back. I think we understand, you know, whether it's for future flu epidemics or a new coronavirus, I think we're going to be in a slightly better position going forward. At least I hope so. So, and then speaking to some of the challenges that COVID has presented, 
and maybe what we could have done for a better response. Should we have been faster to react or, or could we have been more prepared or is it sort of as simple as you say that we learned a lot about just staying healthy and, and that we could have just been, you know, if properly done, staying home when not well and wearing masks? I mean, we could have absolutely have done more because, I mean, this virus was spreading locally before it, it arrived here. And with better surveillance and better public cooperation, we could have been in a better position to slow its spread and, and maybe even prevent a global phenomenon. Now, it's debatable whether we could have ever truly stopped COVID. There are many countries that have done a much better job. You know, you can point to places like Australia that have been really able to keep COVID out. That requires huge amounts of investment. It requires public to be on board, but also kind of requires a, an island nation in some ways as well. So I think there's ways in which we could stop an infectious disease, you know, early on in the source, a slow it spread. But I think, you know, in at least some instances, it'll be impossible to prevent sort of a pandemic from emerging. And run from there, I hope that there is that ability for us to enact sort of public health guidelines that prevent, you know, COVID will be part of our, you know, respiratory disease mix for, for years to come, if not forever. But, you know, we could have absolutely prevented that first wave of real impact, that massive spike in mortality that took place especially if you look at what happened in the U.S. and early, you know, New York City, where if we had done the thing, you know, there were so many people ringing the alarm, explaining the issues. We were, did not have the hospital capacity to meet the demand. We did not know how to, you know, to deal with patients coming in. The hope is that our hospital systems will also be able to be better equipped for what that future thing is, and we hope. You just mentioned Australia. So to that point, across the globe, we obviously saw very different ways how the situation was managed, some countries proceeding with life as usual and other countries closing down businesses and restaurants. It can be confusing for the population. What's your take on these different reactions? You know, it, it is quite wild to see the wide range of sort of reactions. I think that there are things that we know now that we can do. I mean, obviously, Testing capacity is significant and, you know, the use of rapid tests can absolutely make such a difference. Obviously, things like masking are super important. I'm more doubtful of the value of, of school closures. I think initially when the first wave came into play, we did not, did not know a lot. We didn't have vaccines and we didn't really know fully the impact on kids. Now we know the impact of kids is minimal, especially if you're vaccinated and you can vaccinate teachers and that should be mandated and mandated for kids. I think the worst situation now is to see schools being closed. I think it's it's unnecessary. I think there is not necessarily good data to suggest that school closures um, lead to better outcomes at the community level. I think we know so much more. And in fact, oftentimes schools can be much safer environments for kids because of the protocols, social distancing, masking, good ventilation. You know, so I'm I'm doubtful that some of these major attempts to lock down are, are, are valuable. So in the U.S. here, we don't have, I mean, we definitely have school closures in many parts of the country, which I think are, are completely unnecessary. We've never, you know, we haven't had curfews or restaurants closed. I think that's probably too far. And I recognize that there's hospitalization capacity differences that we have to account for. And every local context has to apply the best in class science to their local context. So there's clearly reasons why Quebec has a more sort of aggressive strategy. But I think 
given that we know there, it's all about layers of interventions, not about one thing versus the other, I think we should all be solving for keeping you know, kids in school and take other types of measures to keep transmission down. So speaking about kids, why have children been less affected or more protected from COVID? There's a mix of evidence around this, but I think there is something to do with innate immunity and their ability to fight infections. There's probably something about kids' immune systems that allow them to fight this virus more easily than their adult counterparts. So that's, that's good news, but it doesn't necessarily mean that a future variant won't come up that has a specific risk to kids. We just haven't seen it. So that, that has been, you know, the silver lining of this pandemic that, you know, what we've seen is that the impact is greatest in the elderly populations, greatest in those with underlying conditions. But at the same time, it's not an, a zero risk for kids. There are plenty of kids that have been impacted by this virus. There is lots of good evidence for long COVID. There's evidence for this multi-inflammatory syndrome, which is sort of the post-acute effects of COVID infection that we've seen at at my Boston Children's. We've seen many kids come in with this multi-inflammatory syndrome that affects both kids with underlying conditions and those have been perfectly healthy. So it's reduced risk, but it's not zero risk. And that's why, again, immunization of kids is not just about protecting the adults, it's about protecting themselves. And of course, very much interested in getting the under five population vaccinated as soon as possible. That's likely going to happen in the second part of this year. And at the beginning, there was a lot of talk about herd immunity. And so I guess, how would we know when we shift from pandemic to endemic? And how would we deal with endemics? Would it be different at that point? Yeah, it's a great, everybody, you know, talks about herd immunity and endemicity. Herd immunity, I think, is a bridge too far. I think we've recognized that that's just not going to be achievable with the numbers of variants that can escape sort of prior immunity to other variants. It's very likely that we will see future variants that, that cause sort of similar surges to Omicron. Now, we don't know whether now that we've had so much infection in the population, you know, the vast majority of people will ultimately get Omicron, that, that underlying immunity, what that means for sort of future sort of severity of illness it's very possible that this becomes a more mild disease that we see very similar to other coronaviruses that we have circulating. So the best prediction is at some point it becomes part of that respiratory mix, but we're just not there yet. We're definitely not endemic now with the massive surge that we're experiencing in North America. We're far from that. Now, could we be in that spot in a month from now? It's very possible. I would urge anybody that hears people with a lot of certainty about this pandemic to try to run the other way because Anybody that's basically been certain about anything has usually been wrong throughout this entire pandemic. People declared herd immunity, you know, a year ago. There are people that said this pandemic was done. There's many people that have called things and have been absolutely wrong. You know, we have to be prepared for sort of every scenario. There's likely going to be another variant. What that does in the population, I think, is unknown. And so, you know, unfortunately, we just sort of have to be flexible based on what happens next. But I do think no matter what, we're going to be in a better spot. We have obviously the vaccines, we have booster rollouts, we have testing that we didn't have, we have therapeutics that are rolling out antivirals that will play such a big role. And I think it becomes something that's much more manageable. And at least as long as our hospitals are not full, and especially our ICUs, the critical care side is manageable, then I think we're in a totally new phase of this pandemic. So when you mentioned that we should be expecting other variants, I mean, I'm sure one day this is all going to be behind us. Obviously impossible to predict exactly when, but if we look back at other infectious diseases, SARS or Ebola, 
ones that have sort of come and gone, what is the difference between COVID and those? Why did COVID take off the way it did and the other ones didn't? And do the other ones still exist? With this particular virus, the challenge has always been, it's a virus that's hard to characterize in terms of symptomology, and it's not necessarily a severe disease for most people. And the fact that you can spread it either asymptomatically or spread it with very mild symptoms means that people that have been sick have moved, have interacted with others and quickly spread this virus to others in an infectious period where people necessarily don't necessarily even know that they're infected. You know, with these other viruses, they have a very specific set of symptoms. They're easy to characterize. They're severe enough that it sort of puts people out of commission. So they're not easily spreading these, this virus. So it may be, you know, Ebola is more severe, but it doesn't take off at a global scale because it can be more easily contained. And that's even, you know, that's true for, for SARS and, and MERS with COVID because it actually was milder, it actually has a bigger impact. And I know that's counterintuitive, but because it looks like so many other things, it was able to spread incredibly rapidly. And of course, it's evolving too, and it's creating new variants, changes that evade previous immune protection. Of course, we're seeing that now with Omicron and breakthrough cases. Obviously, those cases are, are much more mild and less severe, but it still is perpetuating this virus at, at large scales, meaning that even proportionally it's milder, we're still going to see those increases in severe illness and death. So going back to the importance of vaccination worldwide, what have been the biggest obstacles to ensure that developing countries have access to the vaccine? The U.S., has donated a lot of vaccines, but there has definitely been a national view of focus on immunizing the population first ahead of the globe. And, and especially as you're, we're thinking about boosters and now fourth shots are coming into effect where so much of the globe is yet to have that first shot. There's a vaccine equity issue that not only is concerning for so many parts of this globe, but ultimately it means that we're creating more risk, even for those that are highly vaccinated because they're it just creates more opportunities for variants, new variants to emerge that can escape immune protection. And yes, it's been about donations. Yes, it's been about sharing IP so that other manufacturers can make it. It's also about supply chains and access. There's a very convenient narrative that says, oh, okay, well, you know, in say South Africa, where the rollout hasn't gone necessarily as smoothly, it's because of vaccine confidence or people don't want the vaccine. It's a convenient narrative, but it's not actually correct. What we find is that it's challenging to get people to get the vaccine because, you know, it takes time out of someone's day, especially if they're working full time and as a family. There's not a huge amount of incentive at the individual level, especially if you have to drive an hour to get a vaccine. You're worried about side effects. You're worried about time off work. And, you know, there's an access issue. And, and that exists even in the U.S. as well. We have major vaccine deserts. And so... It's not just about throwing more vaccines into the mix. It's about figuring out how to create access points and incentives for people to go and get vaccinated and making it as easy as possible. And so that's a challenge here in the U.S., but it's, it's a challenge globally, especially. And then I guess, could you speak to the racial and economic disparities that COVID has accentuated? I mean, not just say the vaccines, but access to testing, for example. Huge, huge disparities. We've studied this quite a bit in my team. And from the beginning, disparities in geography, in, in race, ethnicity, 
there's very clear impacts in specific communities. For instance, obviously, we know that the impact of COVID is disproportional and, and disproportionate in communities of color and those that have less access to healthcare. It was further exacerbated by access to testing. You know, we've done analyses to show that certain populations are favored to get easy access to testing. Clearly, in the schools too, while resource schools have more access to testing, they have the ability to control infection. They also have an ability to keep kids in classrooms, whereas schools that were not resourced in the same way pushed their kids to remote, which then ultimately meant those kids didn't get learning environments. But then there was also issues about, you know, nutritional access and all sorts of other sort of secondary impacts. And we've seen this with vaccine access, that certain populations that could quickly access vaccines were ones that were already ones with better healthcare, better testing. And, and again, the same populations keep getting disadvantaged. And Unfortunately, it's compounded by the fact that those populations don't have necessarily the best access to care. And then, so any infection has increased risk of complications, severe illness and death. And that unfortunately has played out through every wave of this pandemic. And especially in the US, I think it's exposed, you know, some of the structural, I mean, it's all, there's nothing surprising here. The structural challenges of healthcare delivery, especially in the US, you know, are really problematic. And, you know, this pandemic has really put that into light. And so once you've had COVID, how in the clear are you from getting it again? We obviously have heard of people getting it twice. I think that, you know, clearly you're getting some level of immunity. And of course, vaccination plus having an infection is a great combination. Now, what that means for the future variant that comes up, we don't fully know. There is good literature that suggests you have really good protection. And that's why there is a case to be made that, you know, after Omicron, we're in a much better spot as a population because we have good coverage of vaccination, good coverage of immunity through infection, but we just don't know. I think that clearly, again, vaccines are protecting against what matters, severe illness and death. There is some risk of breakthrough. That breakthrough case generally is asymptomatic or mild. And I think, you know, for the vast majority of people that I know, especially of the whole holidays that got COVID, which almost every single person I know, somehow my family has not yet gotten it. Famous last words, I'm sure it's on the, on the doorstep of COVID. You know, it's sort of the, the comparison is like you're playing dodgeball and the more aggressive group in front of you is like been eliminated and then you're the last person on the dodgeball court and like you don't really have much of a place to hide. But, you know, the most people that have been vaccinated, especially and boosted, it has not really been much of a problem. It's really a problem if you're unvaccinated or if you need healthcare right now and you're in a situation where there are capacity issues because of the fact that there are many people that have severe illness, that is not a great spot for you to be in because there's just not a lot of capacity around that to handle non-COVID-related needs. Right. Are asymptomatic people and symptomatic people contagious in the same way? You know, it's a good question. I think generally speaking, being symptomatic, you're shedding more virus and you're able to transmit it more efficiently. But, you know, you can still transmit as an asymptomatic person. And this is why these rapid tests are really helpful because they can really give you a very good understanding of how much virus you are shedding. Unlike PCR, which amplifies our ability to understand whether you've had an exposure or you're on the tail end of infection, the rapid test is a direct measure of how much virus you have. And that tells you if you're spreading it. So if you've been exposed or infected, even if you're asymptomatic, those tests can be really helpful in determining whether you come out of isolation or not. 
I know a lot of your work and what you're well known for has to do with global tracking and surveillance of disease outbreaks. So can you speak to what the data needs are to ensure the best possible outcomes in these scenarios and your project covidnearyou.org? What we've always known is that getting good data about infectious disease is really challenging. Public health systems are very slow. They don't capture the range of diseases in populations. So we've actually been building crowdsourcing tools for a lot of years. It's called COVID near you and actually it's now it breaks near me where people submit their symptoms on a weekly basis and tell us whether they're healthy or not and then give us insights about their vaccination status and testing. And that crowdsourced data can provide real deep insights into new waves of infection that you wouldn't necessarily see coming through more traditional sort of healthcare data sets, but then they also can give insights into how well the vaccines are working or whether, say, masking is driving transmission down. So there are really interesting data sets that have emerged as part of this pandemic that I hope will be sort of more core to how we think about future pandemics and not just necessarily about counting cases or counting hospitalizations. There's, there's so much information that exists outside of health systems that if you could harness that data, you could get a jump start on really important signals that would allow you to sort of control infection early on in the population. Any final thoughts or things you'd like to share with us in the community? No, I mean, listen, I, I think that I'm really excited for all these epidemiologists and public health people to go back into their holes. I'm sure that so many people are tired of turning on the, the news every night and seeing the COVID stories being the lead story and the same people talking about the same things, vaccination, masking, testing, social distancing, flatten the curve, all these things, you know. Obviously, I could talk about these things every day for the next two decades, but I'm sure for most people, they want to move on with their lives. And I think there's a lot of exhaustion out there. So I am excited to go back into my hole and figure out what the next pandemic is going to be while people can actually enjoy their lives, take off the mask, move around, travel, you know, and of course, keep our kids in good learning environments too. Absolutely. Well, it's been a pleasure to have you, John. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to We Are LCC. For more, go to wearelcc.ca slash podcast. And remember to hit subscribe or follow on your podcast app so you never miss an episode. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.